0: pray for them, to, for those of us that are here in the room. Uh, we uh, pray the same and that we'll be able to have fellowship this evening in addition to that. Um, I pray that you will speak to us and we will be open to what you have to say. I pray that you use me as a vessel, that uh, I will listen to you and convey what you uh, want me to say and not get in the way. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we concluded last week with a very important pair of verses, uh, passage. And I really would encourage you to, uh, to memorize John 11, uh, 25 and 26. Jesus says to Mary, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Right. And, uh, So that's where we stopped last week. Jesus is affirming the life that is within him, which he had already stated in John chapter five after raising the handicapped man from his 38 years of being at the pool of Bethesda, that he was, God had given him the ability to to give life to whoever he pleased, right? We know from John chapter one Um, at the very beginning of the prologue, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. All things are made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of man or men, humankind, right? So Jesus has life within him, and he also has the right to convey that life to transfer that life to others. And so now we're in the midst of this miracle story where he's actually going to do that to someone or for someone. Um, I stopped at 1126, but really 27 is still part of that same, uh, passage. Uh, Martha's response is she said to him, yes, Lord, Well, okay, so I quoted that, right? I am the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? He asks Martha the question. The question is for you too. Do you believe this? Martha's response is, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, that means the chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. So that's the conclusion of that passage. Then we move forward. This is uh, eleven twenty-eight through th- the beginning of 38. When she said this, she left and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard this, that is when Mary heard her sister Martha say this, she got up quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. The village, of course, was Bethany, which was two miles outside of Jerusalem, but was still at the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and were consoling her when they saw Mary had gotten up quickly and left, they followed her thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a familiar refrain. Martha said the same thing. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, this is interesting. Apparently, Mary is so overcome by her grief, she doesn't even say it, right? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, ah, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have also kept this man from dying? So again, Jesus being deeply moved within came to the tomb. So that's where we're going to pause and comment, right? So let's go back up to Martha's statement of faith. Yes, Lord, I've come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. Remember... um. Martha has already said that she believes Jesus can do whatever he wants, right? She fully believed in Jesus. She's the example of what this gospel is all about, okay? Again, I, I keep going back to, you know, the uh, the end of chapter 20, but verse 31, John says, this is the reason that I wrote this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the reason for the gospel of John. So, that's why you're reading this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of God, right? Do you believe that? Martha did, right? Um, he's the one that came into the world to be the, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. That's why the Gospels written, and Martha is a believer. So then Martha goes back to her sister, uh, her younger sister, Mary, and she says the teacher is here calling for you well the text doesn't tell us that jesus called for mary except through martha's, martha's statement well did martha take the liberty to believe jesus wanted to see mary that's why jesus didn't go ahead and go into town to bethany yet um In other words, did Martha tell her sister something to get her to move out of her grief to receive the same assurance that she, Martha, had after meeting with Jesus? In other words, (laughs) was Martha being expedient and telling a fib? Jesus didn't actually say that. Well, maybe he did, and it's just not recorded in the text, but I find it interesting uh, that Martha wanted to say something to her sister to get her sister to get up from weeping at the house and go out and meet Jesus. Hey, guys, when you are grieving, you need to meet Jesus. Nobody else can comfort you. Not like Jesus. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you all have been through grief uh, particularly in this instance, uh, the death of a loved one, the death of someone close to you. It's crushing. It's soul-crushing, right? Um, It overwhelms you. I've mentioned in the past, really starting right before the pandemic, there are three overwhelming emotions. They overwhelm you. They will keep you down they will destroy you they will run your life and ruin your life sadness now i tell people at funerals you need to give yourself the permission to grieve right sadness is not evil it's not bad but because it is an overwhelming emotion it can overcome you and keep you from functioning right sadness can uh, descend into long-term depression right sadness anger is an overwhelming emotion right anger causes people it just look at all these youtube videos people are doing crazy things man i mean it's and mainly i <clears throat> anybody can be sad and anybody can be angry okay men and women but i think that many times uh, men are the ones who are the most apt to abuse anger um, they're not alone by no means. All right, sadness, anger, and the other overwhelming emotion is fear. People can be so afraid, fear. They can be so afraid that they can't move. Right. Well, what is our response to fear? Um, fight, or flight, or freeze. Right. You don't move. This is this is nature. Okay, so if you're hiking and you see a bear, don't run away and certainly don't try to fight it. What you do is you freeze. That's why when we're afraid in situations, we just, we don't know what to do, right? But this this fear that doesn't have, you know, uh, a clear cause why am i afraid you know why panic attacks or that right why am i having this i don't understand but these are all these overwhelming emotions sadness is the one here but all these overwhelming emotions need to be brought to christ right i need to have the kind of faith that allows me to bring that to jesus and let him minister to me martha did She was not happy that her brother had died. And she conveyed to Jesus, you know, she stated out, you know, clearly, um, explicitly, that if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. Jesus has already stated, as we saw last week, earlier in this passage, that this, uh, what is happening to Lazarus is for the glory of God, right? Uh, There was a purpose behind it, in other words, you and I need to be convinced of the fact that God is good and God is love even when things don't look like they're going that way or demonstrating that. When someone dies, um, especially when we didn't expect that, uh, you know, if someone passes away, like our, our friend Vernon, okay? He was 96 years old. I knew Vernon was gonna pass away within our church community from the time I met him. Because I met him, I think, when he was 90 or 91. When you get that old, you know that your time is coming. But what happens when someone is, you know, 40, right? Or even in our era, when someone is my age, right? Uh, When Social Security was established, the average age of death in the United States was somewhere in the vicinity of 62. That would be next year for me. Y'all ain't ready to go yet, right? I ain't ready to go yet. But now the average age of death is up above 80. I'm like, okay, okay, I can deal with that. So, but when someone passes away and they're, you know, in their 40s or 50s or 60s or heaven forbid, you know, Uh, Someone like our friend Jonathan, who died in a rollover accident when he was 19. It's overwhelming. And we ask, Lord, why? But we have to continue to trust that God is good and God is love. And we need to bring that grief to him. Martha is trying to get her sister to receive the same assurance she had received. Martha didn't know what Jesus was going to do yet. But she trusted him. So she went and got her sister. So then Mary comes running. She saw him, that is, Mary saw him, and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same statement, but with a whole lot more emotion. She's weeping, right? And she falls down at his feet. Is this an act of worship? Eh, Perhaps. Um, But there is... This accusation that is there, really, from both of the sisters. She says the same thing Martha did when she met Jesus. The difference is that Martha followed it up with a statement of faith. Okay? So Martha said this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she said, Martha said, the older sister said, Nevertheless, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. Wow. Mary says no such thing. Mary's more emotional. Um, Her emotions overflow and the other mourners join Mary in really what I see as hopeless crying. You see, mourning can be with or without hope. Okay? And mourning without hope is utter misery. I have done a lot of funerals. Done sounds terrible. I've officiated a lot of funerals. And I always try to give people hope. That's really important. We cannot... uh, Friends, if you believe in Jesus, you, you cannot mourn like the world mourns. They're mourning like that's all there is. Really? Really? Okay? Or... They just have false hope in what's going to happen that they're assuring themselves with. All right. Um, So, all these people can think of is their loss. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, and this includes your life, there is hope, joy, and life that is available to everyone that believes in him. It's an inexplicable joy, it is a, a peace that surpasses understanding. Yes, you've lost someone. Yes, you should mourn. You really should. But don't mourn like the world. Don't mourn without hope. That's just soul killing. It's destroying. Well, these folks are mired in death and sorrow. And you know what? Reality is sometimes people just want to be sad. They really don't want to be comforted. They want you to come to their pity party. They want you to be like these mourners you know, did you know in Jesus day they actually had professional mourners uh-huh, yeah. can you even imagine that? you have a funeral you're like okay well we got to prepare the funeral and uh, who's gonna call the mourners you know and these were people that would be just you know like actors and actresses you know that would just it isn't it? they would just weep and weep and weep you know and they they got into it. Well, I'm sure you've been in those situations. Maybe you've been in a situation where you can honestly admit, you know what, I just didn't want to be happy. Right now, I just want to be sad, and I want you all to be sad with me. I don't do that. I'm sorry. I've told people I don't come to pity parties. I will come and comfort you. I will come and pray with you, but I'm not going to sit here at your pity party. I'm just not going to do it, right? And I'm not going to be mean to people and say, well, you're just having a pity party, because that's not going to help anything either, right? Right? They're not gonna come out of it because I said something you know that was insensitive like that. What I do is I try, I, I'm not Jesus and I'm not even remotely saying that, but when you're a pastor, you're supposed to represent him. Really, as a Christian, you're supposed to represent him. So when I go into a situation where people are receptive to the Holy Spirit, they're receptive to the presence of Jesus, then I'm gonna be there. If they're not, then I'm Irish goodbye, I'm out of there. Okay, I'm not gonna stay there and pat your pout. If that's what you're wanting to do, then that's what you're wanting to do, but that's not what God called me to do. God called me to be a source of comfort for you, okay? Now, that doesn't mean you stop crying or stop being sad. Again, mourning is a process that you go through, right? But um, there are those that simply don't want to come out of that, right? Or there are people that wanna be angry, all right people respond differently to death Uh, especially if it's someone that you know god took them away from me you know and again this is this is really the difference between men and women to a great degree you know the the woman will often be sad and mournful and the man will be angry go to a funeral men are always wearing the sunglasses because they don't want anybody to see their emotions you know it's, a, it's the same thing. I've watched this for 40 years, man. It's the same thing. And, you know, we just default to these emotions, okay? Um, so you can run into people that don't want to be consoled. They want to be sad or they want to be angry. They'd rather despair than have hope. They choose disbelief over faith. They throw a pity party and want all the guests to feel the same way they do. I got news for you. This angers and saddens God. You say, well, how do you know that, preacher? Hang on. Watch what Jesus does. Look at his response to this. It says, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. In Greek, this represents some very strong and complex emotions, all right? It includes anger, sadness, and disappointment, All bundled together in Jesus' reaction. Mary and later the other mourners are accusing Jesus of not caring enough to come to heal Lazarus. So people point their bony finger at God all the time and say, you know what, you could have stopped this. And honestly, I've felt the same way. If I, you know, uh, lost a a loved one, a child especially, I would be really upset with God. I really would. Why didn't you protect this person? Um, So I'm including myself in this, but I'm also saying that we don't understand the purpose of God in every single situation. In fact, we rarely understand the purpose of God in any of these situations, okay? Um, Jesus is hurt and angered by the accusation. Listen to the New Living Translation. Okay, So I've been teaching from the New American Standard Bible. Most translations will say something along the lines of he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Okay, But so that you can understand the, the, the shade of meaning in these Greek words, listen to New, the New Living. The New Living says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Wow. Why? Because he was disturbed by their lack of faith. He did heal a man born blind. He healed the royal official's son at, you know, a command. John doesn't give us all of the miracles of Jesus. In fact, John clearly says at the end of his gospel that Jesus did many other things... These people were aware of them. Jesus had already raised two people that we know of from the dead, Jairus' daughter and the widow of Nain's son. They knew this was Jesus and what he was able to do, and they were accusing him. He's like, what do I got to do? You know, like the old Elton John song, what do I got to do to make you love me, right? Okay. God is disturbed by our lack of faith, even more by our accusations against him. In the end, it's blasphemy to speak against God. That's what blasphemeo in Greek means. It means to speak against. God is love. God is good. And God has a plan. Now, I don't know where you're at right now. Those of you online, those of you that will review the podcast, I don't know where you're at. Um, But you need to recite those statements to yourself again and again. God is good. God is love. God has a plan. If there was no afterlife, then death would be, you know, the ultimate final horror. But because there is a God, there is a heaven, there is an afterlife, then we can enter into this hope that says, you know what? Even though things are not good and right now, God will ultimately make them good and right, and he has a purpose. God is good, God is love, and God has a purpose. Romans 8, 28. Okay, perhaps it gets quoted glibly sometimes, and people are like, I know, I know. No, if you haven't laid hold of it, you don't really know, right? I like the New American Standards uh, translation of Romans eight twenty eight and god causes all things how many things all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose he doesn't work everything out for the good of people that refuse to believe and refuse to love him and refuse to follow his purpose Honestly, your life can crash and burn and things can get really bad. You think they're bad now, continue in doubt and and watch how bad they get, okay? But if you put your faith in God's love and you choose to love him back, if you choose to realize that God's purpose for you is to mold you and shape you and make you more like his son Jesus, who, by the way, is called the suffering servant in Isaiah, We're going to go through suffering this ain't heaven friends we need to stop thinking everything needs to be perfect all the time right i mean i want not i don't want things to be perfect but (laughs) you know i'd like to have working air conditioning you know things like that i mean small things okay Um, but nonetheless we can get ourselves in that accusatory mindset where we're pointing the finger at god and saying you know you don't really care when in actuality, we're just not aligning ourselves with his purpose for us, okay? So what I would say is, you need to believe and persevere in faith regardless of the circumstances, right? And you and I need to be like Martha, not like Mary. Martha did believe. Her sister, her, her, her sister was different, but Martha did believe. Her brother had died. She knew Jesus could have kept him from dying but she still had a glimmer of hope and she believed when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection of the life. We need to be like that. So Jesus then asks, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. All right. Here's a question. This gets used in funerals a lot. Is Jesus weeping because Lazarus is dead? Pause. Is he weeping in sympathy for their loss? Pause. No. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is weeping because they have no faith and no hope. After all that he's done to prove who he is, they still don't believe. They just want to deepen the pain and sadness with a visit to the grave, right? So, again, I'm not... Trying to be accused, uh, you know, throw accusations to you as well. Do you have loved ones and you, do you visit their grave? Why do you visit their grave? Maybe it's important for you to remember them. That's one of the things that I always say in funerals. I have four words that I convey to people in funerals. I organize my service around four words. The first one is mourn, and the second one is remember. Now, if going to their grave is healthy for you to remember that person, right, and continue to keep their memory alive, then I'm all for it. But if it's just so that you can go and be sad, then I think it's pointless. If it's for you to go and honor them, lay flowers there and so forth, I think that's good. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But if you're just marinating in this and never getting over it, um, I'm I'm sure I'm different than than many people. Um <clears throat> I have had an aversion to death since I was very young. The first funeral I attended was my uncle Sonny's funeral. I only remember meeting him when he was still alive when I was, I don't know how young, maybe five. You know, right at that dawning point of your memory. Um he was in a wheelchair. He had been injured in it. Uh, he was a train conductor, and he'd been injured in an accident, I think, related to the train. Um, I have a positive, warm memory of him. That's the only memory. And then, the next thing I know, I think I was... Uh, I want to say seven, maybe six. Um, he had passed away. And um, it was interesting, because if I am remembering correctly and again I was a child but if I'm remembering correctly his body was in the casket at his mother my grandmother's house okay so I know I'm too short to see into the casket so they lift me up to see this dead man in the casket and they tell me to kiss him stop damaging your children with your foolishness. That was terrifying. And I did not do any such thing. From that point forward, man, I didn't want to be around death of any kind at all. It's God has a wry sense of humor that he called me to be a pastor and I've had to do so many funerals because I abhor death. I hate it people are like well death is a door if you don't know jesus it's not right and the door means that they're beyond you now so i understand that some people in order to have closure need to see the remains i do not i do not want to look at the remains of that person I want to remember them when they were alive. Now, if you're different, I'm not accusing you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm also trying to help you not to just get into this sort of weird macabre that some people, dude, some people at funerals are just, they behave so bizarrely in my opinion, right? You've got people that are glib and act like nothing's going on. I officiated my own father's funeral, all right? And here's a casket that is open. My dad is dead in the casket right there. And these people are 10 feet away, five feet away. <laughs> I wanted to slap every one of them. What is wrong with you people, man? Like seriously. But I've also been to funerals where people are just like, they're, they're hugging this corpse and they're trying to, that's not the person anymore, man. Stop. Stop. It's not helping you. It's honestly, it's not helping you, right? Remembering that person and having closure and saying, yes, they've gone. That's, I understand that, okay? When Vernon died, all right, I officiated his funeral. It was, I mean, I am sad that Vernon didn't have the kind of funeral that he should have had. It was right as the shutdowns were happening, Um at the front end of the, uh, the pandemic. And so it was a small group of people gathered. Um, he is actually, um, not in the ground. He's entombed over there at Restland. Okay. And so his casket was here and it's really, I don't know. It's strange to me, I guess they, they, these, I I'm calling it a tomb. They stack these caskets up. So, like, somebody, you know, that is buried there may be, like, way up there, right? And I think that his was going to be kind of up. And I think it's in the same, uh, the same area, the same room, if you will, uh, as Donald, Miss Margie's husband, where he passed away. Um, but nonetheless, we were just, we didn't go into a chapel or anything. We were just kind of right there where his casket was going to be uh, placed, and so, you know, they, they have the casket open. Now, I won't preach the funeral with the casket open. I fail to understand that. I always, the last funeral that I officiated, I asked them to close the casket while I'm preaching. I, I'm not going to do that. I think it's distracting. You're, you need to get your mind beyond this to that, right? Close the casket. You know, if you want to open it again for your last view, that's cool. That's all, that's up to you. That's up to the family. But I'm preaching this thing, and that casket's not going to be open while I'm preaching, period. If you don't want that, then you don't want me preaching your funeral, right? So um, I told everybody after they closed the casket, I said, you all noticed that I didn't go and look at Vernon. I said, because that's not Vernon, and I don't want to remember that. I don't want that burned into my mind. I remember Vernon alive and here. I remember the last time I saw Vernon, right? He was obviously, he had, you know, kind of deteriorated and wasn't kind of all completely aware of what's going on. But I wouldn't have thought he was going to die so soon because I think I visited him on a Thursday and he passed away early on a Sunday morning. And I went in to visit him. And again, this was right as they were shutting everything down. Um, so I went into the the place where, you know, the home where he was staying, very nice place. And, and I said, hey, Vernon, I reached out to him and he grabbed my arm and he squeezed my arm so tight. I thought, wow, my man's got some strength in him. It was incredible, right? But he wasn't, it was interesting. He wasn't looking at me. He squeezed my arm really tight, but he was looking up. Now, I think he was watching the TV that was up there, but to me, there was some symbolism there. He had this this religious programming that was constantly playing on the TV, right? But he squeezed my arm really tight, okay? And that's the last thing I remember of Vernon. That's the last time I saw him. The last thing that I, what I don't want to remember is vernon being in the casket i don't need that foreclosure right you may and that's okay right but what i am trying to say is we need to be like martha and we need to have faith we need to have hope we need to avoid being like mary and being mired in these emotions that just crush us constantly and will not allow us to move on right especially if you know the person is a believer and they're in the presence of God, well, then you can actually learn to rejoice at their home going, right? That's another word that I use in, in the funeral, all right? You need, to, you, need to, you need to mourn, you need to remember, but if you know that this person has gone on to be with the Lord, then rejoice, right? Because you're not being, listen, You're not being sad for them. You're being sad for you. And I'm not saying that's bad for a period of time. But friend, they've moved on. And you need to move on. You really do. It's important. Don't let yourself be frozen with this perpetual sadness, right? So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was born blind not also have kept this man from dying? Remember, that's the last miracle Jesus performed in John, John chapter 9. So again, Jesus being deeply moved within came to the tomb. It's the same emotion, right? It's the same disappointment and anger that Jesus is sensing. He's troubled at their lack of faith. So there are two groups here. There's one group that says, he's crying, see how he loved him. And the other group is like, yeah, well, what's he crying over? He could have healed him. Both groups misunderstand Jesus because they interpret his reaction in reference to their own feelings. You and I need to stop interpreting Jesus in accordance with our own feelings and our own image. Jesus came to transform you into his image not so that you would mold him into your image. And this is what people do all the time, with Jesus. They reinterpret Jesus in accordance with their thinking and their feelings. But the reality is Jesus came so that we could become children of God like him, right? Um, and that's Romans 8.29, by the way. 8.28, I quoted earlier, God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You have been destined to become like Jesus. Wow, that's why he came, okay? So Jesus is deeply angered and troubled again at the unbelief of the crowd. Let's go to the next longer passage, John <clears throat> eleven thirty-eight through 46, and we'll conclude this evening. Now it was a cave, that is, that's where Lazarus had been laid to rest and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha and her sister, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, "Um, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he had saw what he had done. Hmm. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. It's just amazing to me that you how can you continue to disbelieve after seeing something like this and the only thing they're interested in is going and telling the Pharisees. So this tomb is like the one which Jesus would be laid to rest in, in the coming weeks, right after the crucifixion. The Jews uh, would either cut uh, a, a tomb into the rocky hillside or in this case, it appears they used an existing cave. Um, to this day, Orthodox Jews don't bury people in the ground. Uh, there's an Orthodox uh, Jewish cemetery right next to the school uh, that uh, I attended, Baylor University. And what they have is they have external tombs that are built above ground, okay? Um, So this was a cave and then what they would do is they would go into after they either cut this into the rock or after they you know had excavated the cave then they would carve out these beds if you will these resting places and that's where they would lay the corpse right entire families would be buried in the same tomb over generations you know we normally just think of you know you go to a cemetery today and there might be you know the Uh, the husband and wife that are buried next to each other and so forth, or you might have a larger plot, uh, you know, uh, if a child died younger and they're they're all buried. But this would be generations that would be buried, all right, entombed, if you will. And um, they wrapped them in cloths, uh, in cloth, burial cloth, and it was uh, was treated with... um, uh, myrrh, essentially, right? One of the one of the gifts that was given to Jesus uh, when he was a baby, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a burial spice. It's a very pungent, heavy spice. Well, what it is intended to do is to keep the deceased from being dishonored by the odor of decomposition. Okay. Well, they would wrap the deceased in these burial cloths that were, that were dipped in these spices um, and there the, the body would remain until it decomposed down to bones and then they would take the bones and arrange them and they would put them in a box. Yep, it's essentially a bone box, if you will, right? Um, these were their practices, Right, so let's look at what Martha says here. It's called, an, uh, by the way, the bone box is called an ossuary, right? An ossuary. Martha, being the practical one, being the rational one, says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Well, she's being reasonable, even if it would seem that she's exhibiting some doubt. She didn't want to dishonor her brother or her family, right? Again, the reason I don't want to look at the deceased is because I don't want to remember them that way. Now, add to that a level of decomposition that results in a stench. Is that how you want to remember this person? No, it's not. So Martha is not being unreasonable here. Well, I did a play, and we've done it a number of times. We haven't done it since 2010, but I did a play on um, uh, Jesus' life. Uh, the passion and so forth. And there is a, um, a stylized sequence in the play where Lazarus is raised. This, I, you know, I portray this sequence in the play. And when they open the tomb, I have them respond to the smell
1: because I think they did. Lazarus. So um, that they detected the away just as Martha feared. Significant How to do. There's no way merely in a he was stone dead, right? facing so the the 7 degrees. then you have also, refers to relatively soon, and then you may be familiar with the next one, which
0: is rigor mortis. Now, you may not know that rigor mortis doesn't last, this is when the body grows very stiff, right but it doesn't last. That's not the way the body remains. Um, muscles require a molecule called adenosine triphosphate in order to release from a contracted state after death. And so as the result of that not being present, then the body becomes rigid, All right. Then stage two, this is gross. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to help you understand where Lazarus was. He was really dead, Okay. stage two, this uh, Forensics Digest site calls bloated and it lasts for two to six days. This stage of decomposition
1: includes the first visible signs of decay, namely the inflation of the. 72 hours, right? It was one full day and a part
0: of two other days. The body was still, it had not been decayed to the point of, of being useless. So Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is praying aloud to clearly give credit to his father for the miracle that he's about to perform. He never acts
1: independent of the father. He said that throughout the gospel of your spirit, that, that stillborn spirit, he raises you spiritually
0: first and this is what allows you to have communion with God. However, too many of us remain bound in the grave clothes of our past sinful lives. We're like mummies marching around. The spirit is alive within, but we're still living like dead people. Notice, Lazarus had to have other people Free him from the grave clothes. You were never intended to do this on your own. You can't free yourself from the grave clothes of your past life. That's why there's a church, that's why there are other Christians. We're here to pray for each other and help each other and encourage each other and hold each other accountable and help each other to overcome our sinful habits and addictions and all of these other challenges. That's the need. Now, maybe that is me spiritualizing this passage or making a pastoral message for you. But I do think that a lot of us are kind of like mummies. And we need to be freed of those great clothes so that we can breathe free and live the life that God has always intended for us. So I will pray that the Lord sends loving believers your way to help you to get free from whatever you're struggling with. And I pray that you have faith in this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead and will raise you from your spiritual death and one day
1: will give you the gift of eternal life if you choose to receive it. Thank you for joining us online. We appreciate it.